Hey, if you could have, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, I'll get to it in just a moment. I do want to say a little something about yesterday. Um, I had a, a picture sent to me um, by our faithful photographer, and um, you know, Christine said thank you for all the work that was done on the property yesterday. I thought it might be good to give you just a little bit of a picture of what it was like out there, and actually, that's, that's probably like a quarter of the people even. There were like 60 people out there. It was crazy. We were like a bunch of ants. I thought to myself, I don't know if you saw the property prior to um, yesterday, but man, there were so many tumbleweeds and weeds and stuff out there. It just looked bad. And uh, I thought if we could just get the Cherry Avenue kind of Lover's Lane corner cleaned up, I thought that would be just a great feat. To get the whole property cleaned up was amazing. And, uh, you know, it was just a fun day. But I, I bring this all up because of um, actually something that happened right towards the end of the day. And when I say towards the end of the day, we were scheduled to be out there from 7 till noon. And I think we were done by about 9.30ish, something like that. I mean, it, it was just, it was, you know, many hands make light work, you know, and it really was that way. But Brian and I were happened to be standing by each other and... Uh, we were over on the Cherry Avenue side towards the kind of the west corner over there. And there was this little girl out in her front yard. There was this blow up, you know, she had this blow up pool, you know, which looked pretty good by that time to me, you know, and she was in the pool and, and she was, you know, recognizing that we were all out there. And uh, she, uh, she yelled to her mama. She says, Mama, the church is just about done. <laughs> and it was just really cute. Um, but I caught myself just being aware of the fact that, you know, the people of the neighborhood were seeing what was going on out there. And even though they, know, they don't know that that's an administration building, that's not the end of the church, if you will. Although that administration building, by the way, is going to have a lot of ministry happening within it. It was just really something to realize that we had a little bit of a, of a uh, presence in the community. Um, after the first service, I was told another story by a sheriff um, or someone in law enforcement that actually happened to be going. He said I, he happened to be going by the property about the time this picture was taken, and uh, I, I guess he was in like a bus with you know prisoners. And I don't know what, he didn't tell me what they were doing, but they went by and and he said the, you know the prisoners. There was this conversation that started about all this activity on that property. I wonder what all those people are doing. Well, he he goes to our church. So he said, well, those people are, that's a church. Well, what are they doing out there? Well, they're cleaning up the property. And he said, it was amazing. These guys were like, there was this conversation, like they'll all get together to do that, you know? Um, one guy said, yeah, they, we don't even put orange jumpsuits on you. But, um, <laughs> but then, you know, that kind of, he said, you know, we have to be careful. We're, we have some restrictions on what we can say to the people about the Lord, the, the prisoners. And so on the way back, they went by again, and it started the conversation again in this, in this bus. And they said, I wonder, I wonder what church that is. And he says, well, I'll show you. And they went past our property and says, this property here. And he says, that's the church. It's those folks, Grace Community Church. I thought, wow, who would have ever known, right? And God's people get together. The point is, is that people see you, and that's, that's a witness to the Lord, which leads us into our message today. Um, I am Pastor Tim. You've already heard that. Pastor John's up preaching at Hydro this morning. Keep praying for him. I hear it's going really well. Um, I am 
preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. I never intended to go through the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. You know, when you're the kind of the secondary guy, um, I don't think of myself as a secondary guy. I just, when you get a chance to preach when the pastor's gone, you know, it's hard to decide exactly what to do. And I really never intended to preach through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and it might take 10 years, but I think Brian's a little rough on me, um, but he can answer the Lord someday for that. Um, but I preached through the, the, um, the Lord's Prayer, and then I thought, gee, why not just go through the whole, Lord's, the, the whole Sermon on the Mount? Because there's these nice, really nice uh, sermons throughout. It's really easy on me, and I've enjoyed it, and I hope it's, it's been really enriching for me, and I hope enriching for you. Because it is the sermon, the, the greatest sermon ever preached, in my opinion. Um, I do want to remind you, as I reminded you last week, I think it's, it, it's, in, it's especially important today you must remember the overall context of the Sermon on the Mount. First and foremost, what the Sermon on the Mount teaches us is how far short we fall when we stand before a holy God. We will always make mistakes, and you must never forget that. The Sermon on the Mount helps us to know that we need a Savior. And even though we've already given our lives to Christ, we still need a Savior because we make mistakes, even as Christians. Then the secondary... Um, the secondary... You can take that picture down, by the way. Um, the secondary, um, uh, underneath all that, is the fact that once a person gives their life to Christ, then as a Christian, if you claim the name of Christ, as a Christian you are called to live a certain way. As citizens of the kingdom of God, you have a res we, I should say we, have a responsibility to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. That is our best form of evangelism. I hear people say, I don't know how to witness to people. Pastor, you need to come out and talk to them because I don't know what to say to them. Just live your life for Christ. That's the best witness you have for folks. When people see how you live, they get a chance to see who Jesus is. So today, we're going to look at the fourth illustration in this series of messages. Um, and it's a fourth illustration of what Jesus uses to depict what verse 20 says, and that is of chapter 5, a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This is about oaths and truth-telling. And the message is so applicable for us today. R. Kent Hughes, in one of his books, says this, Today, there is an urgent truth shortage there was a time when Western culture was distinguished from other cultures by at least a conventional outward sense of obligation to tell the truth. Now, I hesitate to say anything political because I feel like we as Christians have get too caught up in the political realm myself. I don't like some of the things I hear Christians say about our, our leaders and our government. It's okay to stand against, I mean, it's okay to differ on their, on their, uh, their views, but to Tear them down as character, tear down their character is just wrong. But I'm going to risk taking us there for just a moment because I do remember, I'm old enough to remember that there was a day when a politician was considered as someone who told the truth. And I think today we don't trust politicians anymore. And I think that's a picture of the way it is in the culture. But I happen to think we as Christians are not much better. I think we are the politicians ourselves. 
Arkan Hughes goes on to say, but now there is a pervasive indifference to truth-telling. And this has not only affected day-to-day -day conversation, but the most solemn pledges of life, perjury under solemn oath is epidemic, the sacred vows of marriage are broken almost as often as they are repeated. God's name is invoked by blatant liars who purport to be witnesses of the truth. And I would argue that we are the blatant liars. It has been a very challenging message for me to study. I hope it's challenging for you because Jesus is going to speak to us through this passage or through this text about how God's people are to live in relation to their word. Now last week I said that I was very nervous to, I actually said I was scared to teach the message because of the subject matter. You know, faithfulness and faithfulness in marriage and divorce. I'm not scared this week. I think it's a pretty straightforward message actually. Um, but I do have a concern because I fear that what will happen with this message, I think it's a tendency that we all have me included, is that you'll hear the message and you'll say, yeah, I agree with that, and I know somebody that really needs to work on that. I think we're really prone to want to look at other people. And I really think we need to, we need to resist that today and say, what does this say to me? What does it say to me? Apply it to yourself. Now Jesus begins, we're going to read Matthew 5, 33 to 37, but before I do that, I want to say that the first word he says in this text is again, again, which should take you back to the previous text. What he's going to do is he's going to give us another illustration in a from a different area of life. They're all the same. He's trying to show us how to live, and he uses these, um, these words here today. Matthew 5, 33-37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But, I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond that, beyond this, comes from the evil one. So first and foremost, let's talk about, Jesus says, do not break your oath. Now, oaths, that's the way the Greek word is translated in the NIV version. If you have a different version, it might say vow. Oaths or vows. I want to tell you that oaths and, and vows, it's not like they're different. They're the same thing. In, its, in, its, uh, in, in the most basic way, they are simply promises made in the name of God. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount is written to Christians. So oaths can be made, you know, without making them in the name of God. But we are Christians. It's speaking to us. Oaths made in the name of God. And because they're made in the name of God, they are a big deal to God. We need to understand that God does not just sit and put up with everything we do. These things are a big deal to him. 
They shouldn't be entered into lightly, impulsively, or flippantly. Try to put yourself, I know, I know it's probably wrong to say this, but if you were God and people were making vows in, or oaths in your name, that would be a big deal to you, you know, because they're, they're putting your reputation on the line. That's kind of the thrust of this. Proverbs 20.25 says, It is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vows. So Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not break your oath. Well, what did the people hear long ago? What is he talking about there? You have heard that it was said. What is that a reference to? Um, when he says, do not, when you make an oath, don't break your oath. I want you to know that that's not like a quote directly from the Old Testament. It's more of a summary statement of all the Old Testament teachings on oaths. It wasn't a direct quote, but an allusion to other, to many passages, uh, just a few of them. Exodus 27, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Leviticus 19.12, do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Numbers 32, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. Now, there's a couple of truths that come out of those passages and others. The Bible clearly forbids irreverent oaths, the making of oaths in a wrong way. He forbids irreverent oaths, the breaking of vows, or light use of the Lord's name. And every time you'd break a, you'd break a vow or not keep your word, you're, you're, you're using the Lord's name in a, in a wrong way. Once the name of the Lord was invoked, the vow to which it was attached became a debt that had to be paid to the Lord. And what that means is, is when you make a vow in the name of God, God expects you to keep it. That's the thrust of that. That's the debt. And there, there were conditions on these oaths and these vows. I'm trying to just kind of summarize all of what's in that. If you're going to make an oath, keep it. Um, and from, the from this point on, I'll quit using oaths and vows and just say oath. Just realize it's the same thing, okay? First thing about the conditions of an oath is it's, is it's done voluntarily. It's a voluntary obligation or promise made to God. So for example, if I use the most common um, kind of oath in our culture, I think you could all relate whether you're married or not to the, to the oath or the vow that's made in marriage. Now I think what we think is we're making our oath to, the, to our spouse, and that is true. But as Christians, we're making that oath to God to be faithful. There's fidelity in that. And there's a conscious, whenever that vow is made or that oath is made, there's a conscious dependence upon the will of God. And what I mean by that is, for example, in marriage, when you make an oath to your spouse, what you're saying is, I will live with my spouse. I will honor that, that commitment to my spouse. 
but I will do it in a way that God prescribed it to be. In other words, I will live according to the guidelines of the word of God. And these oaths are considered acceptable to God. In other words, if, not if, God made the, just staying with this one example, God made the marriage relationship, we take the oath to live in the way God wants us to live, and if we do that, that's acceptable to God. If we live in a way that's not acceptable to God, we've already broken the, the vow, if you will. And this is why, for example, as a pastor, and this would be true for all of our pastors in our church, I would never perform a wedding ceremony by two people who want to be married that are already breaking the obligation of marriage. In other words, if they're living together as Christians, I'm not going to perform the ceremony because that's not acceptable to God. And I would be a mockery to the name of the Lord by even performing the ceremony. You understand? That's why if they're living together, we would say, you need to realize that's wrong. You need to stop living together and confess that to the Lord. And then if they did that, yeah, then we would perform the ceremony. But see, it's already, it, these, these oaths need to be acceptable to the Lord. In other words, lived out in the way the Lord wants them to be lived out. This is why, to the best of my ability, I would never marry a Christian to a non-Christian. Because that's a violation of the word of God that says, God's people are not to be unequally yoked. I would marry a non-Christian or an unbeliever to an unbeliever, but not, not an unbeliever to a believer. Because that's, that's a violation of the whole thing. And the oaths, the last thing about this is the oaths always tend, tend to the spiritual edification of the one who takes the oath. Again, if I used, if I used my wife and I, our marriage, when we got married, we had, we were not Christians. We were not believers. And we had, and, and whether, by the way, whether someone's a believer or not, the truth is still there. When you get married and you enter into a covenant, if you will, that God created and a way to, and there's a way to live in that. He created it to work a certain way. If you don't live in it in the right way, then you're going to have problems. That's what happened to my wife and I. We had all kinds of problems. But then, thankfully, the Lord came into our life. He saved us. And then we began to, our marriage began to change. And we began to try to honor the Lord and do it His way. And all of a sudden, there was joy. There was, there, you know, we, we started to, um, it all started to work. And we were edified, if you will. And now we are very happy because of that. Although I hesitate to use happy because happiness is never guaranteed. But fulfillment is, and we are. Now, when it comes to oaths, I want to let you know there's really kind of two different aspects. So it's the same thing, but two different aspects to these oaths, to the violation of them. A violation of an oath can be this. You, you can swear to something that you know is not true. That's a violation of the oath. To swear to something that you already know isn't true is a violation of the oath. In our day, we would call that perjury. That's a violation. That's an oath violation. But an oath can be broken another way as well. To make an oath and then not to fulfill the promised oath is also a violation. They're really the same thing, but they come at, you come at it from two different directions there. The breaking of the oath or making an oath that you know is already not true in the first place. 
So Jesus says, if, he says, you have heard that it said, do not break your oath, but keep the oath you have made. And then he goes on, that's in verse 33, then he goes on in verses 34 to 36, and he offers kind of an antithesis to that statement. I've been calling these illustrations, but they are really uh, what a lot of people will call them antithesis statements. They're kind of um, contrasts. So Jesus says, you heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath. And here comes the antithesis. But I tell you, do not swear at all. Now, I'm not meaning to insult your intelligence, but I do want to tell you I'm a guy from Tulare. And, and we don't always understand everything real well. And I just remember when I, was a, when I became a Christian, they would say things, and I, would, I really liked it when the pastor would point out, help me to understand things. And I fear what happens is sometimes we read the scriptures and we think in terms of our kind of English language. And when Jesus says, do not swear at all, I fear some will look at that in an English context and say, oh, he's saying I shouldn't be cussing or saying swear words. That's not really what's being said here. What's being said here is this idea of, of swearing an oath, like standing before a bailiff and saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's what's being talked about. I, by the way, I'm not saying that you can all go out and cuss now. <laughs> I'm just saying this particular text is not talking about that. That's not the thrust of this. That would be followed under malicious talk and things like that. And a question that comes up here, and it really is a theological kind of disagreement. When Jesus says, do not swear at all, is he saying that God's people should never take oaths? That is a, that is a, a, a question for, um, for discussion. Now, some have understood these verses to mean that you should never take an oath um, and even refuse to take an oath in court. And although one may really appreciate that commitment to the Word of God, I have a tendency, I think they are in, interpreting the word wrong here. Um, I don't think Jesus is saying we should never take oaths for a couple of reasons. First off, Oaths were encouraged in the scripture, in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 10.20 says, Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. See, they even encourage you to take it in his name. And folks, we'd be in trouble. We'd be in trouble if, if we were never to take an oath because we take an oath all the time. If you've been married, you took an oath. That's already been mentioned. But we would argue that baptism is an oath. When someone is baptized, they're, making, they're taking an oath to live as God has called them to live, to follow him at all cost, even to death. We would argue that communion is, a, is an oath. We remember that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that because of him we have been reconciled to God. And we therefore are now making a commitment to be ministers of reconciliations ourse reconciliation ourselves, which is why we should never take communion if we're doing something that is in violation of the Word of God. We need to make that right first. That's a whole other message. Jeremiah 12, 16 says, 
And if they learn well the ways of the people and swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be established among my people. So we're encouraged to do that. And I know how the argument will go. Some will say, but that's the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, that's gone now. Here's a new way of living. Let's remember, Jesus didn't abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law first and foremost. But there is precedence for oaths in the New Testament. Now, you may not spot these as oaths. You may not see them as, you know, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. But the Apostle Paul makes oaths and he does it in the name of God. As God is my witness is the way he's, it's being said. Romans 1.9, God whom I serve with my whole heart and preaching the gospel of his son is my witness. How constantly I remember you. 2 Corinthians 1.23, I call God as my witness. You can see him. As God is my witness, I call him as my witness. That it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. See, he's making oaths to the people. And some would say, I know how it goes. Some would say, well, that's the Apostle Paul. He makes mistakes. <laughs> okay, we won't, we, I'm not going to battle that one because, you know, those are inspired writers of the Word of God. But even Jesus himself took an oath. It's found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 62 to 64. Jesus was standing before the high priest. Listen to what it is, what, how it's recorded. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. That was the way, you know, he'd remain silent a lot of the times when he was being um, questioned. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Son, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. Now I realize some would say, well, Jesus didn't make the oath. The high priest did. That's true. But Jesus chose to take the oath. He could have stayed silent. So that's modeled for us. God himself makes oaths to us. He, made, he swore to us that he would never send a universal flood again. He swore to us that he would send a redeemer. He swore to us that his son would, would rise from the dead. See, oaths were endorsed, are endorsed in Scripture and designed to encourage truthfulness. Now, it's important to note that we swear oaths in the name of God who is all truth. God swears oaths by himself on his own name. The problem is not the taking of oaths. That's not what Jesus is, is saying here. But there is an abuse. The question is, what is the abuse that he's trying to correct in the culture? And the abuse or the problem is not swearing the oath but swearing, making irreverent oaths or making oaths in a wrong way. Taking oaths and swearing them to be true when it is known to be false or swearing an oath with no intention of keeping it or with the intent to get out of it. 
If I was to give you a modern day, I think it's safe to say this would be a modern day example, would be like a prenuptial agreement. I would never do a, I would never perform a wedding with a prenuptial agreement. I know you should never say never, but I will never do it. Because to me, that's just saying if it doesn't work, I'm out. It gives you an out. That's not the heart of it all. And that's kind of what was going on here. And these irreverent oaths are condemned in Scripture. Do not swear falsely by my name, Leviticus 19.12, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So, the, so they, were, they were doing oaths in a wrong way. And to help you to understand what they were doing, I have to give you just a quick kind of history of the time of Jesus' day. By the time Jesus preached this sermon on the mount, the Jews had built this entire legalistic system around the Old Testament teachings. In other words, they had interpreted the Old Testament teachings and recorded them as law for people to follow. And so in the Mishnah, which was one of these works that they did, oral traditions that were written down, which really superseded Scripture, actually, which is why Jesus went after him so hard, they had a whole section to oaths, and which oaths were binding and which oaths were not. One rabbi, for example, wrote this, If you swear by Jerusalem, you are not bound by your oath. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, you are bound. You hear the subtle difference there? It's like, I swear to you folks by Jerusalem, which means I just lied to you. I don't even know why you make the oath. We do it all the time. Now I'm facing Jerusalem. I swear to you folks facing Jerusalem, and I've told you the truth. You see the problem? It was a manipulation of words, if you will. It was basically evasive swearing of the oaths. People were afraid to swear in the name of the Lord. Ah, uh, where has our culture come? That doesn't bother us at all anymore. But they were, they were afraid to swear in the name of the Lord because they weren't going to tell the truth, so they would swear by other things. That's what Jesus is trying to address here. And their thinking was that by swearing by other things was not as significant as swearing by the name of God. And so they had kind of, you know, the first class oath and the second class oath. And the second class oath, they would swear by all kinds of things. You know, their life, their health. You know, I, I hear people say, I swear on my mother's grave. I mean, I don't know why they don't swear on their father's grave. What's the difference? But it's always the mother's grave. Or, I swear by my children. See, that's, I hear that too. It's like, oh, I've been talking about my children. I really love my children. They're the most important thing in my life. So if I swear by them, you can really tell that I'm telling the truth. No, I can really tell that you're a liar or you wouldn't do it. That's what Jesus is getting at. And it's kind of like this, folks. It's kind of like you, I, I know you remember this. You're not all too old to remember this. You know, it's like the little kid that tells you something and then they go, ha, ha, ha. You know, I crossed my fingers. I lied to you. I told you it was the truth, but I'm not accountable for it because I crossed my fingers. That's kind of what was going on here. And this is what Jesus is condemning. 
That's why he goes on and says, but I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem. See, he's attacking all of this. For it is the city of the great king, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. I can't even relate to that. Um, but Jesus, what, what's he trying to tell these folks? What's the truth behind this? If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 23, 16 to 22, he addresses this further with the Pharisees. I'm going to read it, but if you'd like to read with me, turn there, Matthew 23, 16 to 22. Here's what it says. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound by his oath. See, it's these two different oaths. And he's saying, you know, what's the difference? And, it, and it's, it, the answer is clear. There's no different. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sac sacred? Nothing different. You also say, if you swear by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. You see that? Blind guides, blind fool, blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. What, he, what Jesus is attacking here is he's saying, listen, you're making these oaths. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. You're making these oaths and you're manipulating my word, but I want to tell you this. No matter how you manipulate it, you're still wrong. Because no matter what you swear by, you are swearing by me because I am behind everything. I have created it all. So when the kid tells a lie and puts it out there as truth and then says, but I cross my fingers, Jesus would say, I gave you those fingers. It doesn't work that way. Or the person that would say, I swear by my mother's grave, or I swear by my children. Jesus would say, your mom was there because I gave her life. Your children were there because I gave them life. So everything that is created by God, which is everything, if you swear by it, you're swearing by God. That's what he's saying. And so the point of it all, Jesus gives us the point of it all. He says, if you make your oaths, keep your oaths. But then he goes on and says, but if you're just going to make an oath and not keep it, then he'll just get rid of the oaths. And he says, therefore, for God's people, you don't need oaths. Doesn't mean you can't take them, but you don't really need them. Because for God's people, your yes should be yes and your no should be no. If an oath is designed to encourage truthfulness and it only becomes occasions for clever lies, then Jesus will just do away with them. And it's true. One who is not believed without an appeal to God stands condemned already. An oath is only needed. What Jesus is saying, the only reason some people need to make an oath is because their word's already un unreliable. I don't know. When I think of 
You know, these kind of things. I don't know why reality shows come to my mind. I will admit, condemn me if you want, but I'm a survivor junkie. I love that show. I actually, I will confess to you, I even tried out for it. I think they made a mistake. They should have picked me. I would have been a good contestant. I would have beat up all those young guys. But I bring that up because if you watch Survivor or anything, you know, I think Survivor is just the reason I get a kick out of watching is because I think it's a picture of the world. I think it's exactly, people say, oh, that's not real. Of course it is. You got a whole bunch of people running around trying to convince everybody else of something only to find out to get what they want, only to find out they lie. You get down to the end of the show, you got three people left now, it used to be two, now it's three, and everybody that's on the jury talks to them about how unethical they were and what big liars they are, and I'm thinking, but they were liars too. See, that's the way it works, but I fear that we as Christians do the same thing. But it's so easy to justify it away. We say, oh, I would never make an oath. I wouldn't do the kind of things those Pharisees are doing. We justify away all the time. We do something like this. Um, we, we say something and someone says, is that really true? No, I was just kidding. I stand guilty myself, folks. I'm preaching to myself. Proverbs 26.18 came up in my devotions this week. Like a madman shooting firebrands or deadly, hour, deadly arrows is a man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. So easy to justify it away. Why do we have to clarify our words by using out outlandish oaths? oaths, Jesus would say. Our yes ought to be our yes, and our no ought to be our no. But I think there's more to it than just telling the truth. I think that's one aspect of something else. And the aspect of something else is that we are to be truthful, but also trustworthy. You know, there was a day in our culture, and I, it, I, it's not there anymore. There was a day in our culture when a handshake was enough. But now, a handshake is not enough anymore. Now we have to have lawyers, not putting down lawyers, by the way. But now you have to have lawyers that you can trust to have you sign documents that you don't have the time to read, nor the yet, nor that you don't even really understand them. And there's so many pages, and there's such small print, you got to trust your lawyer to tell you that this will protect you. Right? Well, why do we need that? Because people are liars. They're not trustworthy. And I think God's people need to tell the truth. Because truth and trustworthiness if those are broken, it will destroy a relationship. It will destroy the culture. It is destroying our culture, is it not? In marriage, we understand. I would argue that every marriage that goes down, goes down because someone is not trustworthy or truthful. We spend a lot of time talking about it in premarital counseling. We have a book that we use as a companion to our to our premarital counseling calls His Needs, Her Needs and deals with the emotional needs of people. I think it's really a great work. I've used it for years. And in that work, Dr. Willard Harley, who wrote the book, would say that for, me, for women, their husbands being trustworthy, that's a huge issue for them. It's not that it's not a huge issue for the man as well, but it's really a big issue for women. They want to be able to trust their husbands. And so in that, he has this section on 
lying. And he classifies three different kinds of liars. And as I studied this this week, I would say something in premarital counseling, and I now disagree with myself. The three different kinds of liars, the born liar, from an early age, he has continually told small lies about inconsequential matters. You know, they just, they're just born to lie. There's the avoid the truth liar. Doesn't lie all the time, only when there is pressure or a significant problem. In other words, they want to avoid the, the hassle. And then there's the protector liar. This is very honorable. My wife can't handle it, so I'm not going to tell her about it. I'm going to lie to her about it. And Willard Harley would point out, you know, it's all, it's all lying and it's all going to tear you down. Now, what I used to say in premarital counseling is very few people are born liars. Not true. We are all born liars. We are. And I think if we were honest, every one of us lies. If you ask my wife, because I've heard her say it many times, if, if you asked her, she would say, Tim never lies. That's not true. Tim does lie. But what Tim tries really hard not to lie. And I'm, t I'm tempted to say that Tim never does it intentionally. But I'm bearing my soul to you. I'm not so sure that's true. We all lie. It's just we justify it away so well we don't even know we're doing it. Now what my wife would tell you when she says Tim never lies, she's saying she really trusts me. And it's my burden to always live up to that. But is that not the burden of all Christians? And again, we are not living as kingdom people if lying is a part of us. And if we lie, we open ourselves up to the kingdom of the evil one. Now, I'm not saying if you lie, you've lost your salvation or something like that. That's not what's being said here. In, Ma in John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said, speaking to the Pharisees, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am, he am here. I have not come on my own, he said, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear it. You belong to your father, the devil. Now he's speaking to the Pharisees when he says they belong to the devil. They're not believers. So if, if you lie, I'm not saying you belong to the devil. You belong to, the, to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For where, for there is no truth in him. When he, speak, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. And what I'm trying to tell us is that when we as Christians, as believers, lie, we open ourselves up to the evil one. And he attacks us. So we need to take our thoughts captive and make sure what comes out of our mouths is, is truthful. But there is more to it than that, and that's this trustworthy side of it. Christians, God's people, ought to be able to be counted on because God can be counted on. Right? And sadly, people don't really want to be in, in proximity to Christians often because, because of the way Christians are. You know, we Christians, we make mistakes. We say, oh, God will forgive us. And then we just kind of fly by the seat of our pants. And people know that. 
And I don't think it's supposed to be that way for us. I think we ought to be better than everybody else. We ought to be faithful employees. People ought to see us, whether we love our boss or not, our boss ought to know that we serve faithfully. Whether we like our job or not, we ought to serve faithfully. No matter what we do, we do it all as unto the Lord. When it comes to money, we should handle our money well. We should be upright in business. We should be generous. If we say we're going to do something, we should do it. And we should be true. We should keep our commitments. It saddens me that sometimes even the commitments around the church, we make commitments to do things and we show up late. I think it's almost like, well, you ought to just be happy I'm here. And I know I'm picking a little bit on something. I, I, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, it's just a personal thing of mine that really bugs me, but I think it bugs the Lord too. Not saying I'm the Lord. But I don't understand why Christians are late to everything. We have to do announcements twice because we can't get everybody here on time to tell them the first time, and then they complain at us because they didn't hear the announcement. Now, just coming to church is only one thing, folks. But should not Christians be counted on to be where they say they're going to be? Oh, well, we didn't say we were going to be at services. Let us not give up meeting together. If a service starts at 9 o'clock, we ought to be in the service at least five minutes till. Not pulling into the parking lot at 9 o'clock and saying, I'm on time. No, you're not. Service starts without you, you're not on time. Neither am I. Now, sometimes things happen. You know, but we talk about the 9 o'clock service and the 9.15 service. We talk about the 10.45 service and the 11 o'clock service. And I'm using that as one example, only one example. I hear people all the time, I set my clock differently, like I set it back 10 minutes. Am I saying that right? So that when it's actually time, I'm actually 10 minutes ahead. I'm like, come on, life isn't a snooze alarm. Get up, get there. Because God's people should be counted on. Now, I want to tell you this. Most would say, I fear, well, I'm going to be very careful about taking an oath because I don't want to violate the oath. Well said. But I want you to understand something. In a sense, the reason I'm making a big deal about this is in a sense, everything we do is an oath. Everything from the moment you open your eyes in the morning and get out of bed, you are making an oath to God. Do you know why? Because if you claim the name of Christ, you, everything you do is in his name. Everything in the name of the Lord. It ought to affect us how we treat one another, the commitments we make, the things we do. Who would have known? that a bus full of prisoners would go past our property. What if we'd been out there doing something we shouldn't have been doing? We were doing it in the name of the Lord. We got lucky this time. We were doing something nice. We love to quote 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to, for the glory of God. True, because everything you do is to the glory of God, either in a right way or a wrong way. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to live such good lives among the pagans. In other words, they are watching us. God, 
God is acknowledging that. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And what that means is, is God will use you to visit the unbeliever because everything you do is done in the name of God. I feel like I'm being too mean to you. But I hope you will see that as passionate. And I, will ho I hope you will see that I violate these things too and it grieves me. That's why we need a Savior. But now... We do it as unto the Lord, and we strive to do it as much as we can. Let's stand and pray together. I hope that my passion hasn't taken away from the message of the day. I really do worry about that. Um, I pray that we will live as citizens of the kingdom of God and make these things right in our lives. People ought to count on us. After I pray, you are dismissed. If you'd like to talk to one of our pastors or elders, whoever's here to be up front, uh, we'd love to pray with you. Let's pray together. Well, Father, in a sense, I violated what I said at the very beginning that, you know, we would hear this message and, I would, and then we would apply it to other people. And I guess that's the point of the sermon in some ways, but Father, I, I do pray that as we go as individuals that we would apply this to our lives. Help us, Father, not to miss the message by seeing you know, someone who does it not quite as good as we do and therefore we're okay. Lord, we violate this. We violate the Sermon on the Mount all the time, which is why we need you to be our Savior. And we're grateful that you forgive us for our sins. Pray through your Spirit you would help us to live in such a way, though that we would take our thoughts captive when we are aware of these mistakes we've made, that we would make them right, we would correct them. And I do pray, Father, that the church in America would stand up and be seen. I pray that our light would shine. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't just sing the cute little song, but it would actually happen. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.